Well, hey friends, whether you are listening to this on Right Side Up Leadership Podcast or Right Side Up Collective, I want to invite you to lean in a little closer for this conversation. We are talking about the book God and Race today with Wayne Francis. Now he co-authors this with his sort of cohort in ministry, his pastor, and when they've actually partnered and merged their churches from Houston, uh, or excuse me, from Memphis, all the way over to just outside of New York City in the Westchester County area, John Siebling and Wayne Francis write this book, God and Race, a guide for moving beyond black fists and white knuckles. Guys, Wayne shares in this episode how this actually started as a conversation privately among them, then on video, publishers have picked this up, and through the labor of love that is 18 to 24 months of conversation about it and editing has made its way into this beautiful book that is both helpful and entertaining and challenging all at the same time, God and Race. Friends, we're going to continue to have these conversations right here. We are an organization that needs to talk about the crucial things, and race is one of those. Now, one thing that I think is clear in this interview is this invitation, this even challenge from Wayne to talk about these things now, before we feel like a cultural moment comes where we deeply have to talk about them. Let's talk about these things now in peacetime instead of wartime, as it were, about this conversation before the next big thing blows up where we feel like we have to take to the streets and then therefore take to our social media feeds or to our podcast, we're going to continue to have these conversations about crucial areas of life, leadership, and faith. That's just who we are here at Stay Forth. These are the conversations that I'm talking to leaders about as we coach. I'm talking to leaders about as we are on our experiences. And I'll just tell you guys, people want to have conversations about crucial matters. Doesn't mean that you can have those online. Doesn't mean that it's wise to talk about those in a 10-week series. If you're a pastor, doesn't mean it's wise to talk about those freely on social media with those who are acquaintances, but it means people desire real conversation about these. And if we're ever going to move beyond a surface relationship with one another, we're going to have to talk about hard things. And so that is a reminder to me and to you here, if we are leaders, we need to talk about real crucial hard topics, especially ones so close to the heart of God as unity is. So I hope that you both enjoy and are challenged by this conversation. Wayne is an incredible guy. He is a thought leader, an author, a pastor, and just an overall great dude with a story of plenty of challenge, plenty of hope, plenty of joy, and plenty of inspiration. All those things are true for Wayne, and I'm just loving a growing friendship with him. So this is Wayne Francis, his book, God and Race. These are the kind of conversations that I am continuing to have, and I want to invite you to continue to have, whether you share this with someone and then talk about it following up, whether you read through the book together or whether you read through the book as a team. I highly recommend it. I hope you're challenged by my conversation with my friend, Wayne Francis. Wayne, welcome to the yeah. podcast. Thank you so much. Man, great to have you here. Been really fun to dive in to your book, God and Race, A Guide for Moving Beyond Black Fists and White Knuckles. Um, one of the best subtitles, by the way, that I've ever heard. You guys nailed that. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much, man. <laughs> Tell me about, um, first of all, 
the structure, how the book is written is probably the most unique uh, that I've heard. Why did you guys decide to do kind of this one-two punch the way that you did it? Well, uh, we feel like most people don't know how to have the conversation in their real life. So they need to see a model of having a conversation. And so we felt like having the back and forth sort of tennis match chapters um, were the best way of taking um, the literary structure in a way that felt similar to the way we, we talk and how we wrestle things down in real life. And I feel like I could be in the room with you guys and I probably wouldn't be surprised. I think you guys did a good job at that. Um, kind of the one, two, the one, two punch again, it's both of your guys tones is unified. And yet, of course it's, it's different. Uh, there's unity, yeah. not uniformity. And you guys both kind of communicate in different ways. One chapter you write next chapter, John writes, just really appreciated um, the way that you guys came across in that. I'm curious, what was the process like of putting this from a conversation into a physical book. You know, so interesting is that it actually started off as a three-part series. Um, we hadn't merged our churches as yet, but I pitched the idea to him. I wanted to do a series called Black Fist, White Knuckles, um, an open-handed conversation about race in New York City when we were together one time. And he was like, bro, we got to do this together. Let's figure out how we can fly to different places and record it and do it for both of our churches. We had no mergers in, in, in mind. It was just that we were used to having conversations about race. And so um, we did that three-part series and it, it was where we got a lot of the basis for the structure of the book because we were having these conversations about very tense subject matters and we put into the three parts, but then um, in February, when we put this, the series online, some publishers had seen it. And if you remember, it was toward the end of February, the beginning of March, when um, Ahmad Arbery was murdered and they asked us to pull it off uh, YouTube and to turn it into book form. So then after we're dealing with that new case and everything, it was like, whoa, what do we really think about all of these macro issues? And I got to deal with Harper Collins to uh, produce the book. And the process was um, beautiful, but painful at times because, you know, you had to go there, right? So we're talking about chapters and how far do you go there? And we're like, no, we're going 100%. So let's let's figure out a way to do this in a way where um, it wasn't a book that was just about to make white people feel guilty or black people to feel in a position of victimization. And I think that that was what we tried to do skillfully. Hopefully it worked. Yeah, a challenge, no doubt. And there are a whole lot of people that have had this kind of idea and have never even either tried to pull it off or been this brave and gutsy. So I really appreciate even that you guys would take it on, but I do think it's, it's woven together nicely. Take me back to your neighborhood. So what's, what's not Lil Wayne, but what's little Wayne like as a kid, what was that like growing up and then kind of leading up to this moment you talk about where you're walking through the neighborhood with your mom. Can you take us there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I grew up in the Northeast Bronx. Shout out to all the people in the Bronx that are listening right now, hopefully. But I grew up in New York City. And when I when I was a kid, it really my classroom looked like a like the UN. It was so diverse. I was around all different types of kids and it was amazing. And um after a little while, there was white flight in our neighborhood. 
and uh, people started to live in very segregated kind of silos. And so Italians lived in one neighborhood, Korean people lived in one neighborhood. And my, when I first grew up, I had Italians next door to me, Asian people across the street, some Latinos down the block. My neighbor, um, Rosie, who I talk about in the book, who was Irish and mean as ever, um, was next door. But then when it got very segregated, we would have to take the bus um, which was now in a predominantly Italian white neighborhood. And that's when it was the first time that anybody had ever used the N word toward me that was white. Um, and I was probably around seven or eight walking with my mom when that uh, crew of kids were getting kind of crazy. And as we approached the bus stop, they were, you know, just getting a little bit more antsy. And then the ringleader, when we got past them, took up a rock and threw it and it hit my mom dead smack in the middle of her back. And I remember her wincing with a lot of pain. And as an immigrant, her Jamaican voice said, you know, just keep walking, baby, just keep just keep walking, which wasn't the sound of a victim to me. It was more the sound of a veteran, of somebody that knew um, and had experienced racism before, um, but was still determined to go where she wanted to go, which was the bus stop. She didn't run. She didn't try to gather me. We kept the same stride and posture to get to where we want to go. And that taught me a whole lot about how to deal with racism through my life, actually. Mm. So John admires deeply how you stand in the tension between yeah. black and white. So let's talk about yeah. that tension. Um, <laughs> why aren't more people comfortable with standing in this necessary tension? Because you become a person without a home. You know, it's um, so a lot of black people might refer to me more like an Uncle Tom because I kind of push back on certain narratives that have been sold to our community for a while. And then, you know, there's white people that may feel like I, I, I'm while I might not typify as the angry black male, I might be pushing against certain paradigms and structures that make them feel uncomfortable as well. And so I feel like I kind of stand in the middle and hold attention in a way, hopefully, where at least both sides can say I'm at least being balanced and being honest. And um, I try to do that in a way where people laugh, like, because I think a lot of the things that happen around our race struggles are funny, you know, I mean, it just really is. And so I think um, the Lord has at least blessed me to be able to articulate to both sides um, the tensions that exist. And I think that's what he probably acknowledges the most is that regardless of how you're going to react to my position, I think being able to communicate to both sides in one way or another is, you know, the blessing of the Lord. And a challenge uh, to so many, I think, is to even move a little bit closer uh, to those spaces. I mean, to use the rock analogy, you're getting hit with rocks from both sides uh, at times. And I know just enough of your story and you share just enough of that to say, that's hard, not only to live without a home, but I don't know where the rocks are coming from in, yeah. in one sense. And in another sense, it's just really hard. We're going to make mistakes. Talk a little bit about that piece of it. We've heard plenty of leaders canceled for, you know, one racial mistake that they make in terms of either their thinking or their talking or a combination of those. Maybe you push that too far. Talk right. about those mistakes. What do we do when we say something dumb? Because we're going to along the way. At least maybe I'm speaking for myself here. I'm going to say something dumb. What do I do when I make a mistake? 
Um, well, you don't stay, you don't say silent. I think you apologize quickly and acknowledge um, ignorance or acknowledge, uh, you know, that your position is flawed. But to not speak only allows us to fester more on things that are not, um, you know, true, or we allow fear to hold us back from having very powerful conversations that we do need to have. So you can't be afraid of speaking out um, to another person, your ideas, or maybe things that you're feeling um, because you're worried about getting canceled. That's the, that's the, the thing that I think the enemy used, um, especially in 2020, um, or at least from 2016 on when um, at least the tentacles of racism seem to strangle everything, churches, politics, you know, pop culture, it was crazy. Um, and it allowed us to be afraid to speak and um, we actually hold a position that we need to speak up, that we need to be able to stumble into those conversations, to stumble into those um, those ways where we might say something, man, that it's like I didn't mean that. Mm. Everybody can feel humility. Um, and that's the, the there's a difference between hubris and humility. And if you have some humility in expressing your point, people will forgive you more than um, you coming across in a way that's like, you know, I, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Which obviously is hard to tell online as well. I think an invitation back to your word conversation is that this comes out of relationship versus out of, Hey, we're trying to go make a public statement and create something. Um, so obviously as you're sounds like signing this contract, even our world is divided. People are taking to the streets. Ironically, at the same time, we're just coming out of quarantine. That was a crazy season. And we think about, George Floyd and everything that followed from that. Talk to pastors directly here. We have a lot of pastors that listen to this podcast, Wayne, and you are one. There are moments that you speak in the midst of the heat and the tension. And then there are times when you feel like, okay, we can breathe just a little bit and have some more conversations. And unfortunately, maybe between incidents um, that have, you know, public outrage happening. How might pastors speak differently in those moments of outrage and then in those moments where there's less outrage? In the moments of outrage, you should always have accountability for whether you're going to have a sermon or a post that you filter through some people of color on how they're going to receive that. And by way, I want to mention that those people of color should be diverse in um, their age. The Black experience, at least, um, is not monolithic. And I would go on to say that you know, other hues of melanin have different um, issues. Um, but I think you you need accountability um, before you say something publicly. Um, so it's good to source, especially when times are tense. And I think when when times are tense, it's okay at times to strate- strategically employ silence. Jesus didn't always speak into everything. I felt like during 2020 and 2021, people needed to appear like they were involved in the conversation. So they had to post something or say something on Facebook. Silence is violence. So I'm gonna I'm gonna post I'm gonna post something to say that I see what's exactly. happening, what's going on. And unfortunately, a lot of people were posting things that didn't have a relationship with a person on the other side of, um, you, you know, the, of the skin color or something. It was just kind of like you were saying things. Um, I think the I think the most tragic thing is actually happening now, Alan. To be quite honest with you, because it seems as though we only respond to issues on race 
when there's headlines and hashtags. And I think like during this period right now is the most strategic time for pastors to be developing relationships with people in the church that are diverse or other pastors. And really, um, because I think that a lot of uh, pastors that were at least white during that season, and I'll speak to the black people because I always kind of flip this too, um, that were white during the season, were trying to find that one black person to say, hey, this is my, my friend. I'm going to have him on this Facebook, you know, live or this YouTube live, and we're going to be talking about race. But they never really had a deep relationship before then. Didn't they, 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 you know, didn't have conversations about these things. So it just dissolved quickly. And now, you know, that there is no real abiding tension. Um, pastors are not having that conversation, which allows white pastors at least to lose authority um, in the race conversation, because it seems like you might only speak when there's tension. Now, on the other side of this, too, what I found during the 2020, 2021 season was that a lot of Black pastors and back Black leaders were not trying to really push the conversation toward diversity. It felt like it was more like we wanted uh you know, homogeny affirmed in some way, wanted to hear our pain and so on, which was great and so on. I think it was a great time for um, more conversations to happen between Black and white people. But conversely, I do not think that the burden and the responsibility of diversity is only for white leaders. I actually think that Black leaders have to be moving in that direction as well to be having conversations with white people. And if you're in a community where your church can actually reflect the complexion of the community, that Black leaders need to have a desire for diversity in that way as well. So it's not just white leaders saying, hey, I do want to have a diverse church. Black leaders have to say, yeah, I want a diverse church too. If your communities represent um, a, a vast array of um, color. I'm so grateful to coach various pastors that are not just saying that, but are doing some of the hard work um, to come and whatever you would refer to some of those communities as, but truly see whether they see themselves as a bridge uh, multi-ethnically or a bridge between right. various communities and um, man, that can be hard. Tension can easily draw and quarter you right in the meantime. Right. Um, And holding that tension you can feel like your arms get ripped off. And so just wanted to give a shout out to those leaders and you know who you are, who I'm in a relationship with. I just deeply admire you and the work you're doing behind the scenes that nobody will give you um, credit for. I will. And I'm going to do that. So short of saying your name here, I appreciate you. I love you. And the work that you are doing is hard. Um, Talk about some of that work, Wayne. Um, everybody maybe is seeming to talk about what would this multi-ethnic church look like? Um, and that's a beautiful vision. What is the work of that vision behind the scenes? What does it actually take? Um, one word, to be quite honest with you, compromise. Compromise. I've been talking. I just did a, a session on Friday night to a church, and uh, they asked a similar question. And they said, what does it take? I said, well, it takes compromise because you have to ask yourself questions like, do I have to embrace my preference in my preaching style um, or can I surrender my preaching style to reach a wider swath of people? Um, do we have to have this style of music, even though it's my preference and it may 
reach a certain slither, but can we open this up so that it's more effective to have a wider swath of people? Um, I think that all of these things to have diversity from the top of our leadership all the way down to the lowest rung um, in our organization requires compromise and sacrifice so that more people that are far from God, but close to us can look in and an onlooking world can look at the church and say, oh, they're, they're leading the way. Because here's the beautiful thing about faith-based leaders, which I'm presuming a lot of your, your audiences in that sector. Um, we, we have a different type of leadership because we get people to comply with our vision voluntarily. So it's not like an organization in the corporate space that is going to say, this is how you have to think about diversity. In our space, in nonprofit spaces, we have to model our value. In the corporate space, you can say, this is exactly what diversity looks like. You use these pronouns, you have to do this, you da 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 And if you don't, then you're- You can't you work know, here you're anymore. An, you don't get your paycheck. You exactly. We have to create cultures that people comply with and be okay with even losing people because they are deciding to follow the vision um, willingly. So that's a big difference. Mm. And so many areas, I'm sure we could dig in in a four hour conversation about what are some of those areas of compromise. Uh, You mentioned preaching style, you mentioned music. Give me three or four more that we just need to be prepared to compromise in if we truly want to see a multi-ethnic church cultivated. Um, I, I do think that's obviously in um, our hiring and our HR policies on who we're looking for to reflect our church. Um, and we're not talking about like things like positive discrimination that are like big deals right now, you know, that 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 are, I'm talking about really having a deliberate approach to making sure that diversity is not just cherry pick like we're going to have a diverse worship team, right? Like that's not a really hard thing to do. In fact, people of color might feel a little bit more manipulated for in areas where it just seems like the entertainment factor is um, brought forth. I'm talking about places where your mind and your opinions and your ideas um, could be shared. Um, I think it has, uh, for those of us that are doing um, multi-site churches and, and the like, it is about actually planting in places and trying to bring a culture of diversity in places that do not have it. I'm talking about North America and sending teams that reflect that to sort of populate this without having like this kind of spiritual gentrification. Um, uh, Yeah, that's just two that came to mind. Uh, That's good. Uh, You talk about the pain problem and the paralysis problem. Uh, Talk about paralysis first, then we'll move back toward pain. What are you referring to? Um, because this issue is so like tense, you feel like you can't do anything. Like it's just better to be like paralyzed. At least I know what I'm dealing with. And many of us during the height of 2017, 18, all the way to 2021 and where we are right now have felt paralyzed. Do I call this guy black or African-American? And what if I say the wrong thing? In fact, I'm not going to say anything at all. Do I do, do I use the word privilege in having a conversation with a white friend of mine, knowing that that might trigger them and shut down the conversation? So I guess I won't say anything at all. It's better to be in my echo chamber where I'm paralyzed with other people that are paralyzed. Mm. Talk about the pain problem. Oh man, God, dude. There's so much to say about the, the, the pain problem. In fact, you know, um, there is a generational PTSD that all of us are experiencing in many ways. Mm. Um, definitely black people wow. because of slavery, 
um, Native Americans or um, uh, Latinos, Asians, you know, there's this, this generation of, of PTSD that we're dealing with because it is so painful to be overlooked. And this idea of like, well, I'm colorblind and so on has actually been detrimental in a lot of ways because we need to see each other's color differences. I mean, John, we, you know, we start at the end and um, we see in heaven that there's still a distinguishment of tribes and tongues and nations and so on. And I think um, what's painful is that a lot of churches have thought that diversity is like reserved for heaven and not a requirement on earth. And that has allowed our churches to be divided and to be homogenous. Dr. King used to say, or had said famously that 11 o'clock is the most divided hour on Sunday. That's not so true in a lot of contexts anymore in North America because of his sacrifice and some of the great progress that we've made. But what I'm starting to see is that our midweeks are the most not diverse. Um, uh, Sundays are getting more diverse for churches in, in places, but I think we go back to midweeks where it's homogenous. We hang out with the same white people or the same black people, and we may worship together at times where it's not infiltrating all areas of our lives. And that's the big pain problem, I think, that we're, we're still not unified. Mm. And it, I mean, really, guys, I invite you to read God and race, um, spend four or five, six hours ingesting this conversation, maybe read it with your team. Um, what we're not trying to do here is to simplify to the point, um, that we, you know, just kind of cheapen the message here. Um, and so I think that I, I have to say that here in this conversation isn't like, Oh yeah. Okay, cool. 400 years. And that's painful. Thanks for sharing Wayne. Um, yeah, yeah. That is a, spot that we all need to be more aware, even as you remind me that, man, I need to do my work and I need to do actual research and I do need to dig deep in conversation. And I hear that clear invitation. Now is a great time to dig in and have these conversations before you feel like you quote unquote have to in the urgency of the moment. Um, And so I hear a lot here of invitation. Uh, I'd be wrong if I didn't ask you to share an embarrassing story along the way. We're going to laugh a little bit. Um, you take some risks, not all of them work. It turns out even for you, Wayne, uh, talk about the red hat incident in your church. I just, I got to hear that straight from the horse's mouth. You know, I was, it was the height of 2016 and I decided to do this series called, um, the Oval Office. And the Oval Office was, in my opinion, the world's most sought after Oval Office is in our chests. It's the Mm. heart. And that needs the most governance. And so I'm like, man, we're going to press right into this. There's all this stuff going on. I'm like, yo, to my team, hey, we're going to do these hats. And we're going to do make Westchester great again hats. And it was during the time of the famous, you know, manga hat. I was like, dude, we're going to kind of, you know, I had this great closing message about the great commission and we're going to reach people and we need to stop. And my team was like, don't do it. Don't, don't, don't do it. And I'm like, nah, we're going to do it. It's, it's going to be funny. We'll play it off. We're going to do it Oprah style. Like you get a hat, you get a hat. Everybody gets a hat. <laughs> so we brought those hats on Sunday, like 150 of them, bro. The biggest church waste of money ever. We threw those hats out. You thought it was like, I let mosquitoes out in the room. People were swatting them jokers, bro. Uh. Nobody. I had about eight or 10 families leave that Sunday permanently. Just not 
wise, but it was funny and it was a, <laughs> it was a good memory. <laughs> Comedy equals tragedy plus time in that one. Plus a little bit of pain, but I wasn't trying to advocate for you know a, a particular uh, you know it wasn't like I was like hey let's vote for Trump or let's vote for no it wasn't it was just about hey what if we just focused on making Westchester great again which is where our church is located a little bit north of Man- Manhattan dumb idea como se dice don't ever do that again anybody don't ever lean into political drama and the reason I wanted to bring it up is not so much to open a wound. Um, but I just appreciate you sharing that in the book because uh, we're never going to hit it completely right. And nope. um, and it just the invitation to have the conversation and like Brene Brown says, what's worth doing even if we fail? And I think this is one of those areas we have to lean in. Um, Pastor, what's worth talking about even if people leave your church? Because chances are they're going to. Um, for something. Left something else anyways, right? That's right. That's right. So I actually hear hope in that. And I know that laughter and joy is one of your big things, Wayne, it's something that you hope to bring to others in the process. And, um, and I do sense that paralysis um, for sure is that I am tempted to not say anything at all yeah. because one person somewhere could potentially misinterpret it some way. But what's interesting, Wayne, is that um, I've never had anybody be offended over a meal at me for a genuine mm-hmm. conversation. And I've asked a True. lot of them. Um, I feel like True. a lot of this is happening in the online space. A lot of this is happening, not really from true friends, but from acquaintances. Um, and I think that goes both ways. When somebody says something dumb that I hear of on the other end, and I'm tempted to cancel them because you just can't say that anymore. Um, man, I yep. feel that same um, challenge to give grace as maybe others challenge to give me or someone else on the other end of that. So uh, man, Wayne, uh, Wayne, I appreciate you. If you could just pass this on to John as well. You guys writing yeah. is a courageous move. Um, and I just kind of wanted to leave with what are what are three or four things that you'd love for people to say, man, I read this book and now we're doing this because of that. What would you love to hear there, Wayne? I would love them to say, I read this book and now... I'm not afraid to attempt to have a conversation with a person that's of a different skin color. Number two, that I'm starting to have more regular dinners, lunches, something with food with a person of a different color. Number three, I have a heightened interest in educating myself on a continual basis about the issue of God and race. And probably the fourth, I am willing to be more vocal about advocating for the unity of all people in my local context. Beautiful. Wayne, appreciate you, pastor, thought leader, speaker, all the things, just overall great dude, Wayne, on the book, God and Race. Um, and yeah, love love what you're doing. And uh, I believe that this is not only a timeless message, but really a timely one uh, for this season. So thanks for all the work you put into this labor of love that is called a book. Thank you, man. It's great being with you guys. And if you're listening to this and are feeling challenged, good, we're glad. We're going to continue to have hard conversations here. We're going to get in the way. We're going to get out of the way at the right time. And by getting out of the way, it's your turn. It's your turn to have a conversation 
with a friend. It's your turn to read this book with your spouse. It's your turn to listen to this episode with your team and start the conversation somewhere. Uh, leader, especially point leader, you have power, you have responsibility, you have influence to start these conversations. And that's what we feel here. We're going to utilize these sound waves here from our mic to get these into your earbuds. Uh, and I want to hear Wayne's challenge loud and clear that now is the time to have these conversations when we when we get to, not just someday when we feel like we have to uh, take to social media and have those conversations. So Wayne, you're a good man. Appreciate you. Thank you. Appreciate you, bro.